0: Good morning again, everyone, and I want to invite you to uh, turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 19, uh, where the words will be on the screen if you need that, our, our new screen, new projector screen, by the way. Crisp, clean, right? Okay. Um, so... That's an option for you. There's also Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need one. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, At FBC, we have four core commitments. We're regularly talking about worship, connect, grow, and go. We hope that this morning you will be able to worship Jesus passionately, uh, connect with others authentically, grow in your faith and walk with Christ and understanding of who God is, and be encouraged and equipped and inspired to go out uh, outside of these walls and engage the world with the hope and joy of the gospel. Um, As we get ready to jump into John 19, would you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for a chance to worship you, just to be together. It just uh, brings me so much joy to to look around this room and see uh, our our church family gathered together, Lord. I pray now that um, you you would teach us from your word. That you would uh, encourage us and, and convict us and shape us and do all that you want to do in our hearts this morning. Uh, we give you our, our attention. We give you our time, our focus, Lord. Uh, would you have your way? Be glorified here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week I came across uh, an article online. It was actually from a few years ago, but the article headline was There's a war for your attention and you're probably losing it. Ominous. I know. uh, There's a war for your attention and you're probably losing it. And the article went on to describe this uh, distraction sickness that we all experience in the modern world. How our attention is pulled in so many different directions, right? The modern world and its technology has given us many gifts, uh, many wonderful things. And yet one of the challenges of living today with our smartphones and our screens and our televisions is this distraction sickness. We are pulled in so many different directions. And the article explores uh, this concept, uh, the attention economy. Maybe you've heard that before, the attention economy. It's not necessarily something new, but it has soared to new heights in recent times. And the idea is that every product and, and platform and advertiser knows that they want to compete for your attention. They're designed to pull as much of your attention away as possible because they know that if they can get your attention, they get you to look or get you to listen, they can subtly or sometimes not so subtly shape you. Right, They can change uh, the way you feel about certain things or, or make you desire certain things or make you want to buy their products or make you even vote in certain ways. Politicians have tapped into this attention economy as well. And trust me, there's, there's like research and data and interviews and documentaries about this. This isn't like, you know, crazy pastor conspiracy theory with a tin hat going on. This is like a real thing. Right, Attention economy, because as one author in this uh, article quoted, or was quoted as saying, you are where your attention is. You are where your attention is. And these researchers and these advertisers are really tapping into something that the Bible teaches, that the Bible affirms, and that is that we are deeply shaped by what we give our attention to. We're deeply shaped by what we give our attention to, what we fill our minds with, what we dwell on, what we spend time thinking about and chewing on, what consumes our thoughts and where we direct our hearts, whether good or bad, will shape us into certain kinds of people. That's why the Bible so often will tell us to look or behold or, or think about these sorts of things or remember these sorts of things because of how this shapes the people we become. And so in John 19 this morning, we're going to see this sort of language, this idea of looking, of beholding. Uh, This text is telling us where to look. And I want you to see this morning uh, what that means for us and why it's so important in our lives. Again, we're in John 19, and we start, we pick up the chapter with this, this narrative that's really, it, it's winding, and it's packed with a lot of meaning. There's a lot going on in these first 16 verses of chapter 19. And a helpful way sometimes to digest all of the information that we're about to see is to, to look at it, to break it down into uh, categories based on the main characters or, or players involved in the narrative. And so we see a few key people in the story. And so normally we'll just like march through the text and look at, hey, this happened and then this happened and then this happened and kind of, you know, talk about it. But, but this morning we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at each, each person in the story in a little greater detail, kind of a more topical approach as we go through. Because I think that'll help us get a feel for what's going on in the text. So we see each of these main players in the first few verses. Okay, look at verse one again. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. So remember where we've been, okay, Jesus has been arrested at the time of Passover. Uh, the Jews and the Jewish leaders want to get rid of him because he's causing quite a stir and threatening them. Uh they are executing their plan now to condemn Jesus and get rid of him, but they know that they need uh Rome's help, Pilate's help, the Roman governor who is in town. And so as this is unfolding, we see the kind of three main players in the story, right? You just saw them. We have Pilate, the Roman governor, we have the Jews or the the crowd, the, the Jewish leaders, and we have, of course, Jesus. And so let's look at him, shall we, in that order. First, we have Pilate, and really we see that Pilate is conflicted. He's the Roman governor of Judea. Again, he's in town in Jerusalem there at the time of Passover because he needs to keep order. He doesn't want a a riot to break out as the Jews would be quite rowdy and the population of the city would swell. And there's all this excitement at the time of Passover about who God was and what God maybe would do in their day and in their midst. And so he was there present to keep order. And he had power and he had jurisdiction in the region, right? That's why the Jews are coming to him in the first place. They want to get rid of Jesus. They want to execute him. But they don't have that power in themselves. They need it to be authorized by Rome. And so they come to Pilate, the governor. He's a prominent character in the text, but we see as we go through that his heart is a real mixed bag. Really, he's conflicted in a few ways. Look, first, at verse one, he has Jesus flogged. Right, he, he has the Roman soldiers who would probably be happy and willing to beat Jesus up a little bit because of how they look down on the Jews. And so he has Jesus flogged. But then at the same time, he declares twice that Jesus is innocent. Right, There's no basis for a charge against him, Pilate says. In verse 4, well, yeah, look at it, verse 4 through 6. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, "Here is the man." As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, "Crucify! Crucify!" But Pilate answered, "Here it is again. You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him." So you see, it there twice in verse four and in verse six, Jesus is innocent. Pilate's declaring, he's done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve this. And so in verse one, we kind of grumble at Pilate because he has Jesus flogged and beaten. And we're like, mm. and then he's like, but Jesus is innocent, guys. We're like, yeah, thanks for saying that, Pilate. So it's, it's, he's conflicted. He even wants to set him free, the text will tell us. But we also see mixed into Pilate's heart, look, is, he's afraid, right? Look at verse seven. The Jewish leaders insisted, look, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, He was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate has Jesus beaten. Pilate uh, tells them that Jesus is innocent. Pilate is afraid, right? The leaders say, hey, Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. And the text tells us Pilate becomes afraid or even more afraid, And we wonder why, because we can tell he's afraid of the crowd in some sense. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But also he's afraid about what exactly do I have on my hands here with this Jesus? Claiming to be a son of God. And uh, John doesn't give us this detail, but in another gospel in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, you remember it tells us that, that Pilate's wife the night before had a dream about Jesus. And she was distressed about what she saw with this Jesus. And she tells Pilate, hey, have nothing to do with this Jesus guy. He's innocent, just like walk away, don't get involved in this situation. So he probably has that in his mind. And now they're saying, hey, he's claiming to be the son of God. And so Pilate's now afraid Uh, as probably a a deeply superstitious Roman official as they would be known to be. And so maybe he didn't think Jesus was the savior of the world as he claimed to be, but maybe he's saying, oh, he's this, this holy man. He maybe has divine powers. So he's very little superstitious about who Jesus is. He's someone that you wouldn't want to mistreat. And now I got the guy beaten up and now he's, he's claiming to be the son of God and I don't know what to do with that. And so he's afraid about what this all means. While he's afraid, though, notice again, another angle, he's also overconfident. Do you see that in verse uh, 10 and 11? Jesus won't answer his questions. uh, And then look at how he responds. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And then verse 12, check it out. From from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. So do do you see what's going on here? Pilate in verse 10, don't you realize I have power over you, Jesus? I could set you free. I could crucify you. The power is in my hands and Jesus really puts him in his place and says, really, the only reason you have power is because God let you have power. It's delegated to you. And so this isn't really about you. God is uh, way more in charge of this than you are. But do you see the irony in the text with Pilate's overconfidence? It's, it's so good. You guys, so. But Pilate, don't you realize I have the power to free you or crucify you? And then verse 12, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but couldn't. You see? I have the power to determine your fate, Pilate says. Narrator, he did not have the power to determine Jesus' fate. <laughs> he, he's, he's overconfident, he's puffed up, he has a, too big a sense of his own importance. He wanted to set Jesus free, but he was afraid, and so he didn't, and so he ultimately hands Jesus over to die. Verse 16 says, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So first character in the story, Pilate. What do we make of him? Do we like him? Maybe. Are we conflicted about Pilate? I mean, he's certainly conflicted. He's what the kids today would call a hot mess. <laughs> right? he's, he's, he's kind of all over the board. He's a new word I came across this week, omnishambles. You guys heard of it? omnishambles? The word? I just learned about it. Apparently, in 2009, it was, um, according to some dictionary, uh, the word of the year. I think it was over the pond. The Brits um, coined it. omnishambles. shambles." Omni meaning all, right, and shambles uh, meaning in complete disarray and total disorder. So, "omnis shambles," you know, is a situation or a circumstance that is uh, shambolic in every sense, uh, in every angle, total disarray from every angle. So. There you go. Just that, you know, use that at your next dinner party if you want to sound, you know, educated and sophisticated and scholarly omnishambles. So that's Pilate. He's a hot mess. He's all over the place. We're conflicted in what to think of him. Are we angry at him for sentencing Jesus to death? Of course. Do we appreciate him in some way because he declares multiple times in the text that Jesus is innocent? Yes. Do we maybe feel a bit for him and wonder, well, what in the world would, would we do? How would we fare in such a pressurized situation? Do we feel for him? Yeah. yeah. Can we relate with him in giving in to fear and peer pressure and the crowd to do something even though we know it's not right? Yeah. And I think this is where we can, can learn so much from, from Pilate as he sentences Jesus. He realizes... It's no longer about whether Jesus is innocent or not. He knows he's not innocent. Excuse me. He knows he is innocent. He knows he's not guilty. He knows Jesus doesn't deserve death, but it becomes about self-preservation, right? And, And career advancement. An unruly mob breaking out on his watch would not look good for him. If he lets this Jesus go... A rival king, perhaps. And word gets back to Caesar that, hey, someone was claiming to be king and you just let them go free. That wouldn't look very good to Pilate, would it? And so although he knows Jesus is innocent, he allows the pressure and the mob and the crowd to dictate the decisions he makes. And again, we can relate with that, can't we? He, he reflects what's so... Many of us do today, though, maybe even in a bigger sense, we're, we're drawn to Jesus. Maybe some of us in this room or at some point in our life, we've related with this. We're drawn to Jesus in some sense. We like some of the things that he has to say, but we're a little scared about the implications of following him, right? What would it mean to be identified with this Jesus, to fully surrender to this Jesus, It's kind of like Mark chapter four, the parable of the sower, right? The word of God is the seed sown out on different soils and one soil receives it at first, acknowledges it in some sense as truth, but then what happens uh, on one soil, it gets choked out by the cares of the world. The weeds grow up and the cares of the world choke it out. There's no longer life. Life. So Pilate can serve as a warning to to many of us who are maybe tempted to ditch Jesus, uh, to pursue temporary gain or comfort or career advancement or social capital or ease of relationships rather than fidelity to Jesus. Now, while Pilate's posture is conflicted, you notice the second key uh, character or characters in the story, the Jews, their tone is quite consistent throughout. Shockingly so. So next we look at the condemning crowd. Look again at verse four. Again, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, gather there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Then again, look at verse seven. The Jewish leaders insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Because he claimed to be the son of God. He must die. And the charge is essentially blasphemy. And right? he's claiming to be equal This is what we've seen them get so worked up over a number of times in the gospel of John. John 5 verse 18, they're outraged when he calls God his own father. As the text says, making himself equal with God. In John 8, 58 and 59, they want to stone Jesus for claiming to be before Abraham, right? Before Abraham was, I am. And they say, that's not okay. Let's kill the guy. In John 10, 33, they say, you, a mere man, claim to be God. He's claiming to be God, and so he has to die, they say. Now again, we've pointed this out before, but some will tell you today that Jesus never claimed to be God. Some would say that Jesus didn't think of himself as God, never made such a big grandiose claim. That was something that you know the church later, centuries down the line, they came up with. But we see that that's not true at all. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. He did so clearly. And consistently, the crowd knew it. The Jews knew it. It's why they wanted to kill him. It's clearly seen in the gospels. And this passage is filled with just such tragic irony. They realize his claims. He's the son of God. This is God in the flesh, walking among us, come to save us. And yet they reject him and want to crucify him of all things. It gets worse though, looking at verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Do you see again the tragic irony here? In the second half of the passage, Rome, Pilate wants Jesus to go free, while the crowd, the Jews, want to Condemn him. You're no friend of Caesar if you let him go, they say. They're threatening Pilate. Again, Caesar isn't going to like this. You let this rival king go free, he'll know you're not with him and for him. There will be consequences. Tiberius Caesar at the time was actually known to be quite uh, sensitive and suspicious to claims of treason or disloyalty. And so Pilate naturally would be very sensitive to that. The irony is so strong and tragic in that At the time of Passover, when the Jews were remembering how they were liberated by God from a pagan king, Pharaoh. It's at that time they are now demanding that a pagan king, Caesar, is honored rather than their God. It's a complete reversal of what they should be doing. It actually gets even worse. Gets even worse. Verse 14. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, "Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate?" asked, and here it is, "We have no king but Caesar." The chief priest answered. "We have no king but Caesar." Now, that statement coming from the mouth of plenty of people would not necessarily be that surprising in the Roman world at that time. But this is the chief priests answering in this way. This is the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the religious leaders of the temple, the chief priests, his officials. We have no king but Caesar. I mean, in saying this, they're not only rejecting Jesus, but, but any messianic hope for the future. They're abandoning Israel's hope in a Messiah altogether. We have no king but Caesar. There's no king that would come from the line of David. They're abandoning, rejecting God himself. I mean, think about just the wealth of Old Testament passages. If you open up your Old Testament and go read through it, all the passages that point to the Lord as king. That God is the one who rules and reigns, right? No matter what earthly king is on their throne or what president is elected or whatever, it's actually God who's in charge. He's the true king of the universe. He rules, He reigns. Jesus Himself sits on His throne. Think about all the passages Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God. He has dominion over all things. Think about Psalm two, it talks about how the Lord sits on his throne and He looks down at the kings of the Earth, and he, he laughs at how earthly kings try to overthrow Him and flex their muscles, in a sense. God sits on his throne, and he's not threatened by anyone. Think about Psalm 47. It says, "The Lord most High is awesome, the great king over all the Earth. God reigns over the nations." The think about Isaiah chapter six, the famous scene where Isaiah the prophet comes before God and sees him in his holy temple. And he sees the Lord on his throne and he says, woe is me, my eyes have seen the king. They knew the scriptures, right? They knew all those verses. We can lead a great Bible study on the theme of, you know, kingship throughout the Old Testament. And all that, now to this statement, we have no king but Caesar. I mean, what a radical departure from their foundation. What a radical departure from their faith, their heritage, their scriptures, from the truth. This makes clear what was said in John chapter one. Truly, uh, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What radical blindness so we have conflicted pilot. We have a condemning crowd as another warning to us, because it might be tempting for us to, to read this and see their example, right? And say, wow, I mean, can you get a, you get a load of this? I can't believe they did that. I mean, we, 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 we would never do that, right? I mean, we would never be so blind, right? It's so foolish to totally miss it the way they did, right? I mean, we're so much smarter now, so much more moral now. So much sharper now. Like we, we would never make that same mistake, right? Of course we would. Right? Of course we would. Of course we're prone to the same blindness. The same disobedience. The same foolishness to reject God. So online the other day... Uh, um, an advertisement for for mayo mixed with like Oreo stuff. It was like Oreo mayo. And it just shows how far we strayed from (laughs) the wisdom of God and the grace of God. Really, I I joke, but I mean, seriously, but radical blindness in the Bible is, hear, hear me out. The Bible is just unrelenting in displaying the reality of our sin it's unrelenting in presenting to, to us our own, our own depravity and our, our great need. Not because it's against us, but because God is for us and needs us to see the truth. So, so yes, we are, we are made in the image of God. And we are loved by God so deeply and, and given incredible capacity for, for creativity and cultivation of the world. We're entrusted with so much as, as stewards, of this earth and given gifts and creativity and a calling to uh, represent God here in this place. And again, we're, we're precious to God, and at the same time, we are, are guilty as sinners. And since the fall, our own selfishness and our own rebellion has, has plagued us individually and collectively, and it's turned us inward, and it's led us to rebel against God. And so, examples like this in Scripture are, are to warn us. And to humble us. Not to make us go, ah, we want we to do that. They were so silly. But to make us go, we could do that. And we do. And so we need the grace of God. Because right? you might be listening to that and say, well, that's all very uplifting. Pastor, thank you. Um, it might be very dis- discouraging in one sense to think about it. Because there's bad news wrapped up in that, right? We are sinners in great need of God. And, and we might ask them, what hope is there for us then? Right? If we could be that blind and that weak and that foolish and miss it that bad, where is their hope? Right? And the hope is not found, we know, in looking within. The hope is, only hope is found in looking away from ourselves to Jesus. Right? He is our hope. It's, it's the grace of God. It's, it's the mercy of God that's our only hope. You've heard this old saying, perhaps, right there, but by the grace of God go I. Right there, but by the grace of God go I. The only reason I'm here, the only reason I'm over here and not in complete destruction is the grace of God. It's not because I was so smart or I figured it out or I'm morally better than everybody else. It's, it's the grace of God. It's the only answer. I realize that the blessings I enjoy in my life are all grace, all a gift. Starting first and primarily with with salvation and relationship with God to start with, right? That we're forgiven and invited to know Him freely given to us through the work of Christ and all who trust in Him. I remember a couple of weeks ago, my buddy was visiting from Hawaii, and he's a pastor there. Many of you have met him. He's preached here before, and we were we took the ferry uh, into San Francisco to watch a baseball game. And so we were. Uh, it was like late afternoon, or yeah, late afternoon, heading to the game. And we're sitting on the back of the ferry, and you know we're looking around at the beautiful scenery of the Bay Area and the water. It's warm, but the water's kind of like splashing and misting us, and so it's keeping us keeping us cool. And we have a, a cold beverage that we're enjoying. We're just sitting there looking out, and uh, you know Scott turns to me and he says, "Man, what what did we do to deserve all this?" And he knew the answer. He just you know just throwing that out there. And my response was, "It's all grace, brother." <clears throat> It's all grace. It's all just a gift, and uh, and he of course knew that. Um, but yeah, it's all it's all a gift. And so, in this condemning crowd, we see the radical blindness and sin of the human heart, our desperate need for a savior, and our desperate need for God's Spirit to wake us up and give us life and faith and repentance. So we've looked at conflicted Pilate. We've looked at this condemning crowd. And now we looked at, or we will look at the crowned king. And really the whole scene revolves around this Jesus, right? And we see it really clearly in uh, the middle of this text, Pilate's question to Jesus in verses eight and nine. Look at it, uh, verse eight. When Pilate heard this, the, right, the claims, he was even more afraid. And so he leaves the crowd outside and he goes back in to the palace where Jesus is being held. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. That's the question, right? Where, who, who are you, man? <laughs> like, where do you come from? There's all this activity and shouting in verses 1 through 7. Uh, and then there's all this activity and shouting in verses 12 through 16. And then right, right in the middle, it's almost as if it just like slows down and, and zooms in. In verses 8 through 11. Where do you come from? And Jesus doesn't directly answer him, you see that. But, but the text all throughout is, is telling us the answer. Who he is, right? He's, he's the king. He's given a crown of thorns in the first few verses, a crown being, or excuse me, let's read it, verse two and three. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews. So he's given a crown the sign of royalty. He's given a purple robe, purple being the color of royalty. He's greeted with hail, king of the Jews, that being a, a greeting for royalty, as they would say, hail Caesar. He's royalty, he's the king. And yet, mixed into it again is this tragic irony that while this is happening, it's being done in jest, he's being mocked, he's being beaten as it all unfolds but they're saying and doing more than they realize, right? Cause they, they think it's a joke. They're mocking him. They're beating him, but he really is the King. Right? It's showing us this, this deeper meaning on display that they don't see and they don't understand, but we do because we can see looking back and what the text tells us, he deserves the crown and this Royal robe and this honor of hail King of the Jews. He deserves it all in the best way he is the king. He's, he's innocent as well, right? Multiple times. We already said this Pilate, verse four and six, he's done no wrong. He's without sin. He, he didn't deserve this in any way. Verse 10 and 11, you see again, Pilate. don't you realize I have power to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So not only is Jesus the king and not only is he innocent, but he's in charge, right? So that the plan and the will of God is unfolding. Pilate is only able to do what Pilate is able to do because God allows it. His power, his position is really delegated from God, which is true of any king or ruler. They only have power because God allows it or gives it to them. And he misuses his clearly. And the events, however tragic and granting the sinfulness and and the guilt of their actions, still shows that God is in charge in bringing about his redemptive purposes to save the world. And this is where we we zoom in even closer to two statements that are made in verse five and verse 14, where we look really closely at this crowned king. Verse five, when Jesus came out that first time wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, here is the man. And then skip down to verse 14. It was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. So in both those verses, it says, here is, right? Here's the man. Here is your king. Uh, Both of them are the same word. And your translation maybe instead says, behold. Behold the man and behold your king. In other words, look, look at him. Pilate is, is presenting Jesus to the crowd in these uh, real-time events, but we see that there's more wrapped up in this invitation to behold. Behold the man, the word made flesh. Behold your king, the king of glory. Actually, often when that word behold is used, it's inviting us to look deeper. Look, uh, there's something here more than just meets the eye. Behold. The same word was actually used earlier in John, uh, John chapter one. Do you remember the phrase, behold the lamb of God? Twice there in John chapter one, behold the lamb of God, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Twice at the beginning of John, now twice here at the end, behold the man, behold your king almost like bookends to the whole gospel. And it's at this time of Passover when lambs were being sacrificed for the celebration, when the people of God were remembering that first Passover in Egypt, how the blood of a lamb was put on the doorpost of the homes to protect them from death and judgment. In light of this, behold, the lamb of God, behold, your king. And he shows us just what kind of king he is. A king that would demonstrate radical, radical, unparalleled love for his people. Dying for his people that they might live. I mean, what are we looking at when Pilate says, behold, we're looking at Jesus, uh, the king of the universe, God himself in the flesh, going to his death beaten, mocked, suffering, flogged, ultimately crucified, dying for your sin and for mine. Taking our place so that we, like Barabbas, remember, can go free. This is the heart of the gospel message. The death of the king for the freedom and salvation of the people. And it makes me wonder how you would answer the question, well, What is God like? You know, if you were to ask today, well, what is God like? How would you describe him? Who do you think God is? I think many of us today would answer that with, well, I don't know necessarily about in this room, but in general, in the world, maybe, you know, God's out to get us. God's just looking for an opportunity to to condemn us and strike us. Or God's, he's not really interested. Like he, you know, the clockwork God or the clockmaker God, he set it all up, spun it, and then just let it go. And now it's, you know, he's off playing golf somewhere and the world's just kind of running and God doesn't really care about the real events and the real pain, the things that we're going through. So he's, he's out to get us or he's disinterested or maybe he's, you know, he's just mad about everything. He's really grumpy and you don't want to bother him. And yet we, we see here this invitation, behold, look. Behold your king. Look what God is like. Full of love for you. Willing to die for you. Willing to come and die and rise again for you. Not disinterested, taking upon our very pain and suffering and death that we deserved. Behold. And this asks then a further question is, uh, do we behold? And when do we do that? Is it a regular habit and practice of our life to take up this invitation to behold your King? Look to Jesus. Do we do that? Do we, are we in a habit of, of spending time with the Lord and being in his word and, and coming before him in prayer and lifting our eyes to him? Of course that happens at church on Sunday morning, why this is important. But, but even beyond is when you leave today, Are the eyes of your heart lifted to the king often? Like we talked about to start this morning, there is a war going on for your attention. and We're probably losing it most of the time, right? How often throughout the day are we just invited to look? Look over here. Look at me. Look at this notification. Focus here. Read this. Buy this. Ah, this alarm's going off. This is buzzing. Embrace this. I think so often we're just so distracted and our lives are so crowded and our headspace is so busy that we don't really have a chance to behold. To look deeply at Christ and what he's done. To spend time in his word and in prayer. And so if that's you and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know when I really do that. uh, An invitation would be a next step for you would be to, to figure out a plan to do that, right? Just to say, Hey, simply each day, do I, in, in, in my uh, morning time before I leave for work, after the kids are down at night, do I, can I carve out 10 minutes to read a bit of the Bible, to pray? Can I establish that habit in my life to behold? And I'm not bringing this up again as if it's just some like random spiritual box to check or like, you know, get your good Christian, good Christian box checked by having your, your quiet time. But because it, it really... Influences how we live and how we navigate the world, where where we look. It shapes us, and I'm one of those people um, who who gets discouraged sometimes. Anybody else? One of those people? Those like strange strange breed. You know, we get discouraged by life sometimes. Um, More of you should have raised your hands. Okay, so (laughs) I get discouraged, and or or, or, thank you, Rick. Uh, That was a late hand. It still counts. The Lord still. Okay, good. Okay. I get discouraged, or I get overwhelmed, or I get frustrated, or or, or wounded, you know, by whatever is going on in in life that's challenging at the time, whether it's work-related, or home-related, or relationships, or finance, or whatever it is that, you know, gets you bent out of shape. We all have uh, something, and I find that sometimes it's hard, like, emotionally to to pull myself out of that place, right? You ever just been in a funk, and you're like, gosh, this is going wrong, and I'm just grumpy about this, and I'm, uh, I just want to, you know, go... I, I don't even know, just like go for a drive or hopefully not kick a dog or anything like that. But you know, you're just grumpy and, um, and it's hard sometimes to pull yourself out of that. And what I've what I found often to be so helpful and so encouraging, um, and it maybe sounds cliche, but really to, to sit with the Lord and open up his word and maybe listen to a great worship song or maybe read a psalm or, or read, you know, what's ever next in my Bible reading plan. Because what that does is it then takes my eyes off of myself and my like, current predicament, and my current stress, and sometimes we just look so closely at like the immediate, and our vision's right here. And when we sit with the Lord and open up his word, and remember the things that are true about him, it, it focuses our eyes elsewhere. We have to lift our eyes up, and we take a step back, and it zooms us out a little bit to see the bigger picture. It, it gives us some perspective. It helps me remember, okay, I have a good father in heaven who is for me and who is at work in my life. Uh, Jesus promised to never leave me or forsake me. He's here in the midst of this. And even though maybe sometimes things feel like they're out of control, we have a sovereign God who is directing all things according to his will and his plans and we can trust him. When We remember those truths. It it changes then our, our disposition. It changes our posture. Uh, I, I know for me, it often allows me to re-enter whatever situation it is that I'm in with, with more joy, more peace, more rest. And it's not like a one-time quick fix. You know, often we have to over and over again, remind ourselves of these truths to behold, to look up to the Lord, remember who he is. And I say this because I know some of us are here this morning and we're, we're coming in with all kinds of frustration or stress or anxiety or burdens. And sometimes we think that what we need the most is a change in our circumstances. Right? We, need a, we need financial help or we need you know, a Goliath torn down or God to answer a prayer in a certain way. Or we need you know, the, the letters of alphabet soup to align and spell out some words and tell us what to do. Like we just need you know, something dramatic to enter into our life and situation, circumstances. And sometimes God answers prayer that way. Sometimes God does that, but, but what if what we need most often isn't a change in our circumstances, but a change in our perspective? And we simply need to behold and remember who Jesus is and his glory and his love and his goodness and his power, that we can trust him, that he's at work, that things aren't out of control because he's in control. He's our God and King and the one who loves us and died for us. And friends, that's really what communion is all about. Communion, as we're about to partake together, is an opportunity to behold, to, to, through taking these elements, remember Jesus. To behold our King. Look at Him. Look at what He's done for us. His blood shed for us. His body given and broken for us. We get the joy of just coming and receiving all that He's done for us. His great love for you. And so we practice uh, an open table here at FBC, um, which means uh, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here, even if you're visiting or out of town or have another church home, if if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate with us uh, in remembering Christ through communion. So I'm going to pray for us. And then in just a moment, we are going to take the elements together. If you didn't get one of these when you came in, uh, there are some in the back. Juan has a basket so we can get those to you. If you just lift up your hand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. and We just want to say thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Uh, thank you for dying for us. Um, as the song says, amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? So we take these elements to remember you, Jesus, and our great need, our sin, our need to be forgiven. Thank you for doing everything for us so that we could simply trust in you, place our faith in you, and your righteousness becomes ours. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.